I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, another great day in South Dakota, folks. Uh, The sun is shining. We need a little bit of rain, but uh, just happy to be living here in this great state where under God, the people rule. Um, been been meeting more listeners of the of the show uh, recently, priests. We've got some state legislators, plenty of great lay people across the Upper Midwest. So, if you're a new listener to this show, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Um, we kind of range a bit between um, some more like concrete, talking about case law, statutes, legislation, and some of the more like um, theoretical, conceptual church teaching, some of the principles. So we're going to take a step back into some of the principles today. Uh, really excited about our guest joining me on the show, Dr. Chad Pecknold. He received his PhD from the University of Cambridge 20, uh, 2005. Since 2008, he's been a professor of historical and systematic theology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., just a beautiful campus. I love visiting there uh, every year when I make my annual trip to the 202, uh, Washington, D.C. The author of uh, author or editor of five books, including a book I have on my shelf, Christianity, Christianity and Politics, 2010. This is a fine book, folks, that belongs on every Catholic bookshelf. He's a, also a Professor Pecknold frequent con- contributor to debates in the public square, which I think is probably how I came to know him. He's writing in places like the Catholic Herald, uh, First Things, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, National Review. Um, he's on radio, NPR, et cetera, et cetera. Really just delighted to have him on the show today. Professor, welcome. Oh, thank you for that very generous introduction. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Well, and I should mention too, for, for all of our Twitterati uh, among the listeners out there, you're, you're also, uh, I don't know if prolific is the right word, but a yeah, fairly regular contributor to the Twitter sphere, tweeting at CC Pecknold. Um, so love, love following your tweets, although I'm not a, a Twitter, I'm, what do they call that, a lurker? So, <laughs> but uh, the question, uh, the question yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, it's to be a lurker. <laughs> Especially when um, one represents uh, bishops, we, you know, I've got to be maybe a little more yes, uh, exactly. di- diplomatic. So anyhow, our question today that we're going to talk about is uh, a question that was sent in by a listener. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating question. I think it's come up in various contexts uh, on this program before, but we're going to dedicate a whole show to it today. And it's quite simply this, you know, what does the Catholic Church believe the role of the state to be like, what is its what's its purpose? What's its end? Um, and I think in the listener's mind too, are like, what are the appropriate limits to it? You know, sometimes we talk about uh, limited government, or or even getting into this principle of subsidiarity, that that each um, things have proper boundaries. So this is um, this is the question. I I just happened to check your your Twitter a few minutes before you started recording, and uh, saw that you had tweeted um, not long ago. Uh, and I just jumped out at me. I want to share with the listeners. It's from uh, the Catechism, paragraph 2246. Uh, the church must pass moral judgments, even in matters related to politics, whenever the fundamental rights of man or the salvation of souls requires it. I don't know. Is that a good place uh, for us to jump off into the conversation? Well, I, I put that out there on social media just for this podcast, Chris. So I think so. <laughs> what is it's that? a perfect place to jump off because because, because it, it 
it's so timely as we're speaking so much in the media about the Eucharist. I mean, it's incredible to get notifications from the Wall Street Journal that they have a big article on the Eucharist. You know, you, you don't normally see that in, in our public fora. But I think we, uh, we have a unique opportunity, we Catholics, to teach the faith. Uh, even to those who uh, reject it, uh, and even those who claim to practice it, such as President Biden in the news, uh, precisely because many people think the church does not have the authority to judge in p- politics. Right? Many, many in the news media will say, well, the church should keep its nose out of our politics, right? I think Chesterton once noted that um, it's it's the one thing that we don't do. We don't keep our nose out of politics. Uh, we don't do that. Um, St. Augustine in the 5th century said that Catholics are always a nuisance mm. for reason, that we, we care about the whole thing. We don't care just about our little part. We care about the good of the human person, the good of the human family, the good of the human community, the good of the political community, the greater civil society, the good of the relations between political communities. Yeah. We go on and on up the scale all the way. Why? Because we think all that goodness comes from God. Mm. And all that goodness goes all the way up to the goodness which God gives. Well, in mentioning Augustine, too, there are some state Catholic conference directors who would point to Augustine as perhaps their patron, um, recalling that as a a bishop, uh, that he had a correspondence with one of the Roman governors in the area concerning, if I remember right, it was maybe the fate of a a prisoner uh, condemned to die. Does this ring a bell for you? Oh, sure. You know, uh, Augustine... If you look at Augustine's letters, um, you know, we often think of him as a controversialist, someone who's constantly pushing uh, the church's teaching against various heresies. Um, But what is unseen to many people is how frequently Augustine is writing to magistrates, is writing to to Roman governors, proconsuls, uh, so forth. And, And the the uh, um, epistolary evidence that you're talking about are these letters to magistrates pleading for mercy in death sentence cases. Mm-hmm. Something that Augustine frequently did. He thought that he thought uh, the death penalty was just under certain conditions, but he also uh, thought that it was the role of the church to plead for mercy. I, uh, and so he was frequently writing to judges. So I want to take a look, uh, Professor, at Matthew 22. The, my correspondent raised this to me and, and wanted an insight on it. So Matthew 22, the Pharisees send their disciples to Jesus and they say, Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. 
does this, um, what do we take away from this? You know, uh, maybe a natural question would be what belongs to Caesar? What belongs to God? How do we know which is which? And does it imply sort of this uh, barrier between the two? Yeah, I think, I think it, it doesn't imply a barrier. It implies a hierarchy. Mm. And I, I think this is, I think this is one of our, we're probably the first society in human history that has proffered the idea of a separation uh, between uh, a political community and the religious community. Hmm. Throughout all of human history, there has certainly been a distinction but the idea that you could separate is a bit like thinking that you could separate the material part of the human soul from the spiritual part, right? Mm. That, that we're, we're, we're a composite creature of body and soul and we can make those distinctions, but we would never say the body's separate from the soul except in death. And similarly, we can make a distinction between the church and state. We should make a distinction between the church and the state. Um, But we should make good distinctions. And Jesus is making is one of an ordered relation that, that what you owe to Caesar is much less than what you owe to God. You could owe everything to God. You owe this little coin to Caesar. Um, you owe, you owe a, a part of your, of your wealth to Caesar uh, for the goods that Caesar provides for. Um, you, you owe a certain kind of uh, what Aquinas calls the virtue of patria. You owe a certain kind of allegiance, like the kind of obedience you give your parents. Yes. You owe that to Caesar. But that is far, far less. That's like the denarii compared to the whole of your existence, which is what you owe to God. And so I think what is in that Matthean rule there is this notion of are subordinate to the spiritual eternal things, namely God. So that gives you a, a very clear sense that that Jesus is both recognizing that there is something due to Caesar, but that it's subordinate. Yes. It's lower than, um, and should be, should stand under what is owed to God. You know, when you mentioned this, um, we, we can't actually separate our, our humanity, the material and spiritual components of who we are. We're, a, we're, a, a a hybrid, I don't know, hybrid's the right word, but we're a composite. I think composite. composite is the word you used. You know, it, it kind of brought to mind for me this letter letter to uh, Diognetus that I've, we've discussed on the program before in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it, clerics will be familiar with it because it's in the Office of Readings uh, in the Liturgy of the Hours. Mm-hmm. It's a very short letter. I do encourage all lay people to go read it too. I think the Vatican has it on its website, but it's this sort of early, I don't know, first or second century letter when... Um, sort of Christians are being described from sort of a third party point of view in this, in this letter. And I, I think that this reference is made as um, Christians are like as to society as the souls to the body. Is that, 
Yeah, and that's a common trope, not just in the letter to Diognetus, but throughout the early church fathers, this frequent metaphor. So the question I, I think that, that may come next then is to what extent should the soul, you know, Christians as to the souls to the body, but yes, okay. But what, what extent should the state be used to, to mandate certain behavior or action? You know, we of course recall from, you know, the, John Paul the Great, that the church always proposes, she never imposes. How do we make this connection between okay, the soul of the body, Christians are to society. But then we start talking about things that even in South Dakota, which is uh, by and large, um, it's got some um, traditional values. Certain legislation has been very, very difficult, uh, contentious. Things like uh, prohibiting, this bill failed uh, two years ago, prohibiting um, so-called gender reassignment surgeries and and medical interventions for children uh, failed. you know, there was a big, big uh, over. Yeah. Um, it, uh, sports and protecting women's sports, gender ideology, and even something so simple this last year is um, just ensuring that birth certificates are an accurate government record that can be manipulated in the, in the future, kind of at the whim of a person who now identifies in a, in a certain way. So, I, so to return to the question, to what extent should the state be used to sort of mandate some of these these things? And um, if so, how do we make that leap? Well, of course, the political community has, is, um, depending on what sort of form it's chosen for itself, hopefully some sort of mixed form of governance, there is a directive principle which um, is ordered to the common good. Mm. And so if if a legislator can reasonably understand that what is being pursued is actually good and that it can be demonstrated by ordinance of reason, that is, it's reasonable to say that something is good, not just Uh the opinion of the demos, but it's actually reasonable to argue that something is good for everyone, Mm. then the state can mandate things. Yes. Right. Um, the state, the state actually has an obligation to mandate things, but if there's a serious, if there's a serious deficit in the argument that something is good, like, um, like for the first time in history, we think that, uh, a man can become a woman. Yes. Right. There's a massive burden of, of argument of, of proof that, uh, should, should, uh, should fall on to that kind of claim. Um, a political community cannot mandate a change of nature itself. It's just beyond its competence. And so, uh, for example, or Obergefell, which tried to describe and say what marriage was, that sentency of his authority a political community does not have the authority to say what nature is, what the nature of marriage is, for example. Um, And so it cannot mandate those things. So Obergefell is an unjust law because it's beyond the competency of our courts. It's beyond the competency of our political community to redefine what nature is. Um, That does not mean that the political community cannot command. The political community can command, but it must command in in 
uh, a way which is uh, commensurate with Freudian duties. You're, and I just want to point out for the listeners that you're essentially reading my notes right now, but I want to, I want to make clear that we didn't talk about this ahead of time. You know, this link to reason is so, so important. Um, you know, a resource I'd like to commend to the listeners was uh, Pope Benedict's uh, address to the Bundestag, German parliament, and I think 2011, maybe 2012, but it kind of unpacks just a bit for a political body, the reason and, and how reason is the link uh, for the for the church in in making these proposals in the public square, the political authority, of course, has it's part of its nature to command various things. You know, yeah, I appreciate too, Professor, how you you raised Obergefell as being unjust. It's contrary to uh, it's contrary to, to reason. It's beyond the competency of of a judicial or legislative body to to modify what is within nature, within reality. But the question, and this is kind of maybe a prudential, just looking for your read of where we're at right now. One of the things that's been so striking to me is we have not seen a vigorous response at all to Obergefell. Um, You know, unlike Roe versus Wade, another uh, horrible decision that was both uh, illegitimate just in terms of like how it manipulated the law, but also contrary to nature. There's been a, a, a battle going on for 50 years where people are just like n- not rolling over and dying, but it seems Obergefell is a bit different. Why? I think, I think Obergefell in, in a way, so, so the difference between Roe v. Wade and Obergefell, though they're intimately tied to each other. Um, and and those are intimately tied to divorce laws and to di- the laxity in divorce laws and to contraception. All of these things are tied together in a way that uh, disorders the human person. But uh, I think I think the reason, Chris, why Obergefell was not you know we we have not organized like a march for life there's no sort of march for life response to obergefell um there's no sort of massive grassroots movement um i think the reason for that is that the corporations um and the political community uh kind of came into union with each other to establish something like, and I hope this doesn't put your readers, your listeners off, but something like a new civil religion, Mm. a new civil religion that is rooted around homosexuality, rooted around a sort of Promethean kind of attempt to uh, be able to uh, define human nature according to your desires, your sexual desires, especially, uh, and and that everything became reordered around that. So that the White House was lit up rainbow. When the White House was lit up rainbow, it gave this kind of imprimatur, or the authority of the political community was given to Obergefell. Now that didn't happen with Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was contested. It was a difficult decision. It was, there, there was, the country was divided. With Obergefell, 
the political community said, this is our faith. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that link between corporations and essentially the state, because I think sometimes we can um, focus on maybe overreach of governmental power or an abuse of governmental authority, but uh, certain segments of um, kind of our political class give a free pass to any sort of private enterprise. They're not frightened of it at all. They're, they, they don't necessarily perceive that it can abuse it. Say, you know, free market, it's a uh, do laissez-faire, do it. You're, you're a free enterprise, do what you want. Is, yeah. Is that, is that a, a correct uh, assessment of, of how we should feel or would it be appropriate for the state to actually, um, for the political body to, to be a bit more apprehensive about the abuse of even private enterprises power? There's, there's two, two points I wanna make here, Chris to that excellent question, which Benedict's encyclical Caritas and Veritate, in which he speaks about the market actually coming to this place in which it now has more power than the state. Mm. You know, we saw that when, um, you know, Jack Dorsey of Twitter was, you know, interrogated by the Senate. And he looked like, um, you know, a king talking to subjects. Uh, the the forces of, of big tech, the forces of the market are now more powerful than U.S. senators. They're now more powerful than presidents. And that that's a, a, a very uh, difficult position uh, for us to be in because markets aren't really accountable to anybody. Hmm. But states, formally at least, have the power to check markets. Now, this is in some tension with where, say, both uh, left and right have tended to, uh, tended in libertarian directions. Uh, So the left has gone in a libertarian direction with sex, and the right has gone in a libertarian direction with the markets. By libertarian, I mean you get to choose whatever you want. No, no interference from anybody. No interference from the church. No interference from the state. The libertarian position is that I choose and nobody can stop me from my choice. Mm. The left has done that with sexual desire. The right has done that with the market. So whatever the market wants to do, the right was happy to say, yeah, you get to do it with no government interference. What we're seeing today um, in at least certain uh, kind of a new dimension of conservative thought has been to say, no, actually the state has a right and proper authority to actually tell the markets how to behave. This is actually more in line with the Catholic teaching, is uh, the the conservative turn away from libertarianism to say, okay, markets are good, but they are also subordinate to the good that is the common good that the political community has responsibility for. And so the market must actually serve the common good. It must serve the good of the nation. And if it doesn't serve the good of the nation, the good of the families that constitute the nation, then the state must regulate, legislate in ways 
that discipline. Um, and if we lose the, a business for that, so be it, because the common good of the political community is more important than the GDP. You know, I think one of the things that legislators or politically active citizens can feel a bit maybe sheepish about sort of making some of these arguments. They, and there's this, there's this idea of pluralism. And you kind of hinted at it, I think, a little bit with like some of the libertarian, whether it's from the left with sexual ethics on the right with ec, uh, economic goods. Yeah. But yeah, we just have a hard time in a pluralistic society you know, how to, can you give us a, a view? Um, and we've got about, you know, two or three minutes left here. You know, what, yeah. what should we think of pluralism and, and how the, the, the church sees the role of the state in a pluralistic society? I think we shouldn't believe in pluralism. I, I hmm. think we don't have pluralism. We have, as I said earlier, a civil religion and hmm. it's lit rainbow. And, and the, it is the case throughout history that you cannot have a political and social order without some form of civil religion in which you actually share values and you share a common faith. And the only question ever is, is the faith true or is it false? Uh, and I think the, the idea of pluralism is this idea that we're the many and we're not really united around anything that's united, but it's not true. That's a lie. Yes. We are united and we're united around something false. And I think what, I think what Catholics must fight for is for a, a civil and political society that is constantly pointing us back to what is the true faith that could really integrate us, that could really unite us. Because this faith over here is not true. Uh, and so I think we should refuse the pluralistic kind of red herring that there's some that there's some kind of you know loose thing that holds us all together and our diversity i mean there is a kind of way in which we just are plural that god willed the world to be plural right but the pluralism question just kicks the can of what is the thing that unites us and that's the thing that we should be saying well it better be true. Whatever it is that unites us, it better be true. And it better be something which can be participated in by everyone. It can't be this special thing that's for the 1% or the 2% or the 3%. It has to be something that can be fully shared in by all according to their nature. And that's going to be something true. That's going to be something good. And that's what the Catholic should stand up for in the public square. Well, Professor, this has been just a delightful conversation, given us so much to think about with faith and reason, the role of the state, uh, pluralism, a desire for unity. Um, so we just we, we pray that God will guide us uh, in the future of our state and country. Thank you for joining, my, joining me on Faith and Politics. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And thank you, as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. If you like this show, reach out. Let us know what you liked. Let us know what you want to hear next. You can get in contact with us at sdcatholicconference.org. Click contact us, drop us a line. You could even share us on your social media channel. We've been picking up new listeners, like I've said, which is, which is great to hear. Working for the common good uh, in the great state of South Dakota. Until next time, live well. Live well.